Hello and welcome to Mega Game Report. My name is Peter Nixon. Mega Games, for those who aren't familiar, are board game role-playing game hybrids, which often accommodate very, very large player accounts and sometimes not so large. This week on the pod, we have Evan Lewis and Clayton Hughes of Seattle Mega Games to talk about Seattle Mega Games' newest creation, Age of Flint. Age of Flint is one of the three mega games that were run at Shucks by the Seattle Mega Game crew, and it is unique in that it is an original design by Seattle Mega Games. Age of Flint is a prehistoric mega game where tribes struggling to survive aim to appease these gods with somewhat bizarre temperaments. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure you hear all about it. I- I'm just going to get out of the way here. These guys are great. And uh, let's get right into it. So that brings us to the main event of Shucks, for us anyways, which was the Age of Flint mega game, which was a Seattle mega game original by Evan Lewis himself. Evan what were some of the design inspirations for Age of Flint? Like, what were you thinking when you were designing it? Right. Age of Flint was a game that I was thinking about for a while. Like, because we've been talking in Seattle Mega Games about wanting to make our own game for quite a long time. And I had one I- another idea that was way more complicated. And uh, I think it was Tron was like, hey, dude, when you're designing your first one, start small. Let's not go for a 150 player game right out the bat. And I was like, that's smart. Ooh, Evan, you and gotta you gotta tell us about the more complicated idea, just just for funsies. The more complicated idea was something that we sort of touched on in our uh, panel. The, um, one idea I've always wanted to do is like high fantasy, like Dungeons and Dragons esque town, where one set of players each represents all the different merchants, another set of players represents all the heroes, another set of players represents all the villains, and basically it's like a multi phase game where the heroes each turn are going off and running adventures and then coming back to town with their loot and the different merchants are all like vying to make their, they, they set their own prices. And so they're trying to respond to the player like economy and also like trying to invest to get better equipment to sell to the players. But they also have like a political side game of like, who's the mayor of the, you know, the, the armor's guild or the weapon smith's guild. And so they have like this weird sort of political setup. And then every couple of turns, the villain players, like they build up monsters to send and attack the town. And then like the merchants also have to pay the adventurers to defend their shop when the, when they get attacked. One of the big things I like to do when I'm designing any of these games is come up with fun interactions and the concept of players going, I'll sell you this for cheaper if you'll stay and defend me when horrible stuff comes. And those kinds of interactions are the kinds of things that I was trying to design around. Did any of those ideas make it to Age of Flint? Sort of. But the main design goal that I had when I started Age of Flint was I wanted to do something different with teams. I really love the teams that we have in Watch the Skies and other mega games. But I wanted to make a game where teams were fluid. Didn't end up happening too much because of some number crunching. But the whole point of Age of Flint is that you can abandon your tribe at any time or you can exile people from your tribe. We have had a couple of mega games run where there's a team of randos, you know, who don't buy their tickets together. And sometimes you get a player on your team who's just not meshing with the team well. (laughs) Who have we? (laughs) Yeah. And so it was partially in response to a pretty serious of like one of those happening where the player just did not get along with their team. Their team ended up spending a lot of resources to get that guy assassinated just to get him out of their hair for a turn. Wow. Is this the um, Watch the Skies scientist incident? Yeah, it's that guy. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, yeah. We'll we'll just we'll just uh we'll talk about it briefly. Um so tell me if I'm getting the details wrong. But the scientist was kind of a, an individual. He didn't come with anyone else, right? So he got assigned to a team as a scientist. And his personal goal coming into the game it turned out was to build a mech based off of some anime, right? Yeah, I don't want to throw this poor guy under the bus cuz well, he's probably not listening. But yeah, he really wanted to like basically role play a very specific character from an anime and that was literally all he wanted to do he didn't spend any of the money he was given on research into making stuff for his team he didn't work with his team on anything that was all he wanted to do and he was you know a pretty serious weeaboo and hey i i was a fan of the same anime and so i understood what he was going for but like his team, he just drove them up the wall. Like they came to me multiple turns in a row. I'm like, what can we do about this guy? And I pulled him aside and was like, look, you've got to work with your team somewhat, man. You have to, I get what you're trying to do. You're making progress on that, but you have to spend some of your time helping them as well. And he was like, well, you know, I just don't really want to, or I want to do this. And I'm like, dude, you've really got to work with me here. I'm trying to help you have a good time, but I can't have you ruining everyone else's time. And, no, it was more my character wouldn't do that. And it's just yeah. like, uh, that's great, but we're playing a game here. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's amazing you don't come across more of those characters. Thank goodness they're I so I think rare. it's usually because the ticket price stops most of people from doing that normally. Um, but in con games, people are less, like, supremely invested, I think. And so they're more willing to just show up and do something silly. But yeah, so it was in response to that that I made the rules in Age of Flint that you could exile someone from your tribe. And so I started thinking about what kind of a game makes sense for you to be able to, you know, exile someone from your team or join a different team. And so that got me into a tribal like aspect. And so then the game sort of evolved from there. Another goal I wanted was, like I said, to not have direct antagonism between players teams like because in watch the skies there's the alien teams and the human teams and they are directly sort of working against each other whether the scenario actually depicts that they have to be against each other or just the nature of the secrecy in the game forces them to kind of be at odds and so i didn't want that in this game so that's why i came up with the ancestor spirits and the mechanics around them were designed really to Make something that was different and unknowable by the rest of the players, and so they'd be confused about it, but also something that they wanted to work with. The real goal then was to come up with barriers to make it not super easy to work with them, but make it still rewarding to follow your god's wishes. Yeah, it was. it's a fine line, but the communication barrier between the ancestral spirits and the actual like tribal players. And really... The <laughs> Wow, maybe you should just describe it. I'm amazed about how well this this barrier of communication, how effective that actually was in creating drama. Yeah, like, I gotta give a whole lot of credit to Graham um, for his work as spiritual leader control, and for Allison for basically taking the spiritual, the spirit game and just running it so I was able to be almost completely hands-off as game control and just check in on her. So the two groups... Uh, the spirits sort of were in another part of the room, and the whole point was that each turn they would get 30 seconds to talk to one person on the human teams who was their devotee. And it started out as all the hermits in the game were them, um, but they could have switched it up if they did wanted, but I don't think anyone ever did. They, they got along fine. 
And so that was one way they could inject information. And another way was they could spend a lot of their prayer points to send note cards. But the prayer points were rare enough that they never wanted to do that and just sort of relied on hopefully they would the humans would figure out what they wanted. The humans were able to – the only way they could send messages back were to have their spiritual leader or somebody go and uh, pray and and send a card with their prayer up to the spirits. I'll be true, totally honest. I hadn't intended for them to be read aloud to the entire table originally, but Allison came up with that on the fly, and I was like, you know what? That's awesome, and they're loving it. And the fact that spiritual leader control was so close to the spirits zone – that meant that the people falling on their knees and screaming to the gods like could be easily heard and witnessed by these players. And the number of times I walked by to see someone just getting so into the prayer, like grabbing up a marker and like tearing their shirt off and carving sigils into their chest with the marker, like well, <laughs> chanting. Like I was like, what the hell? And like I would see every once in a while the spirits talking because when those prayers were happening, they were doing like the most complicated part of their turn. Like <laughs> That is when, when that was going down, the spirits were all engaged in this vigorous debate about how they were going to spend their prayer points and fighting with each other and trying to like see whether or not they were going to try and stop each other. It was this whole roundtable debate going on. And then every once in a while, they would hear just like someone screaming out like, Mighty Tafaz, hear my cry! And I would see them like all sort of turn to see who that was and sort of give like a curt nod of sweet. And then get back to work because they had so much going on. But you could tell they were like, I really want to pay attention to this so bad. But, oh, man, I'm too busy right now. Yeah, it was great. Oh, my God. That was hands down probably the most entertaining thing that happened turn to turn. Their prayers were so good. And right out the gate, I think one of the gods was the god of possible reason or like possibly reasonable. (laughs) I forget the exact phrasing, but it was ambiguously robotic themed. And uh, immediately, one of the players just walks up to spiritual control, and he's like, "All hail, like Tobar or whatever," and just starts dancing the robot. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's like, "I will do the dance of my god." And yeah. he started doing the robot, and I was just like, <laughs> "This is starting off good." Like, Graham did a really good job of encouraging the role play, yeah, and making the- those drums and everything. And so people got so into it by the end that I was like, "That was easily like my favorite part of what ended up coming out of Age of Flint." And really, like, one of my other favorite stories was one that Graham told me after the fact, was that since we were in such a small room and spirit land was so close to, like, spiritual leader and healer control, since so that they could hear each other, like, that wasn't really intended. I had wanted to put them in a separate room, but in the future, I'll probably, like, try and put up a screen so they can't see each other, but that the sound would would be carry. But, like, at one point, it's at the very end, and, like, the... Uh, one person, I think it was one of the hermits, rushed over to spiritual leader control to be ready to hand in his thing and go first. And the turn hadn't ended yet. So we weren't letting people do that stuff yet. And Allison is trying to explain to the spirits the stuff. After, this is like second to last turn. And she's like, the giant monster will come out of the volcano this turn, damn it. You guys need to figure out who's going to control it and where you're going to send it. She's like shouting over them because they're like all squabbling over some stuff. And Graham says he's trying to shush them because there's a player nearby. And Graham says he looks at the guy who's writing out his prayer on his little sheet of paper. He stops mid-sentence, looks up, sees this shouting going on (laughs) over at at, at spirit control, looks at Graham. Graham just sort of shrugs 
And the guy's like, um, I need to rewrite this. I'll be back in a second. And had to run away and rewrite a new one because he had just heard a giant monster was going to show up that turn. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it was it was a great game. A lot of very entertaining stuff. Uh, you know, another another thing that I really enjoyed about the game is that the the currency of the gods seemed very well... I'm struggling to find words to describe exactly how the currency mechanism worked, but essentially they would get prayer points, and half the prayer points would go to the specific god that the prayer was targeted for, and then the other half of the points would go to just kind of this general pool, and that pool could be used by the gods, like, with consensus votes... And then if that was used, and then if that, and if it was used by consensus, then it would be distributed evenly among all the gods. So it could be used twice, essentially. There was a bit of that. Uh, yeah, that was basically how it ended up. Uh, early on, I knew that I wanted to make prayer be the source of power for the spirits, because their goal should be get as many of these human, you know, mortals worshiping me as possible, is really the overall goal of the spirits, because that gives them more power and control. They also, the whole point was that they could trade prayer points as they saw fit, so they could buy votes on things they wanted by going, look, I'll pay for this myself or tell you what, if you vote to use this power this turn, I will give you 15 prayer points. And so there was a lot of wheeling and dealing going on there. And then, yeah, so basically it was that half went to the communal pool, half went to them, and then when it was used from the communal pool, I think we divvied some of it back out. I don't think it was all of it, um, because we started to realize that people were having too many prayer points. I had sort of invented, I, each spirit got like a page with 20 or so powers. It was like, these are the kinds of power scaling and cost that we have in mind. And they were in, totally free to invent their own, and many of them did. But the amount of prayer points that were generated were way above what we were, what I was expecting when I was envisioning this. And so we had to be like, whoa, they are Kurt. Like, I think it was on turn two, they made the volcano and that was the most expensive thing I had planned. And I was like, uh Oh, they got up to that many prayer points that fast. We need to come up with something. The spending of the prayer points was sort of a brilliant innovation that Lael had in uh, mid game to deal with, you know, players who were kind of who were not getting prayed to. It was like, how how do we give them some currency to not take them yeah. out of the game, not not ruin their day? That was part uh, of the yeah. That's why the split ended up happening. Yeah, that. and um, yeah. So Evan, yeah. what what are the things that happened that day that that you really enjoyed? And Clayton, this goes to you too. Uh, for me, as anyone who was around me for the weeks leading up to it, I was a total bundle of nerves. And totally, and the Friday and Saturday of Shucks, I was completely panicked and focused on Age of Flame and just so, so worried because we hadn't had the chance to really play test it. I'd run the numbers on the various systems, so I knew it was kind of balanced, but I'd never, no players had ever gotten their hands on it before. And so I was just so worried that I had missed something that was going to totally break the game. And I did one or two things, but that's the great thing about Mega Games is that with a good control team, you find an imbalance and the control team will come up with a fix on the fly and work with whatever the players are doing. And so that turned out great. Like my favorite part was all the costuming because I had been worried about what costumes we were going to have for this game. Cause like watch skies. It's kind of easy to come up with what kind of a costume you're going to do for, you know, we're the French team, you know, uh, that's a lot easier to costume for, but this one, like I was really, Nervous that one, no one would show up in costume, or 
we'd have some like I had to put we had to put a thing in there like please don't wear just a loincloth. Please don't do any like really offensive cultural appropriation style outfits. And luck and the fact like the blue team especially, oh my gosh, the Goshocks in the full Celtic garb and like the blue paint on their faces and their spiritual leader wearing that like wolf head. Yeah, blue hat, team was sick. Like that blew me out of the water. Like I saw them and I was like, okay, this is amazing. Like somebody has gotten that excited and interested in something I created. And we only gave them like the rule book two weeks out. Like we had told them this is what the game's about. It's about ancient tribes and things like that. And given them like a general thing three weeks out, two weeks out, we gave them the rules. And the fact that they did that quick of a turnaround, I was just, like so impressed. The one guy on the orange team uh, that you were with, Clayton, like that guy like hand carved some like pendants or something right yeah yeah he made these really cool uh you know with like found wood and like this really nice thick kind of woolly yarn that you know looked like it could have been handcrafted yeah created these pendants that had their sort of like their fire tribe so they were they were orange and they had this theory like oh you know maybe we're the ones that invented fire um which is hilarious because I had to go and check, like, wait, let me make sure that fire is not an actual technology in this game uh, before, <laughs> you can, before you can be the guys that invented fire. And it wasn't, so I let them, I let them be that. Uh, <laughs> they, they, were, they were a lot of fun. And it's totally worth noting that like, they didn't all know each other before they got there. Like, that what, orange team wasn't a group of friends, and so one guy yeah, made all those pendants. I think it was like three couples of friends or something. Yeah, and just gave it to all the other members. He's like, here guys, I made these for you. And everyone was like, oh, Okay, sweet. <laughs> Man, MVP right there. Way to go, dude. <laughs> uh, yeah, Clayton, what did you like? What was your favorite parts? Hmm. I, uh, well, God, a lot was really good. So I was, I'm going to limit myself to three things. Mm-hmm. One is, as I'm just going to echo, I was right next to the prayers and seeing the people come up and pray and, you know, be loud and crazy was great. Um, so I, I won't, I won't repeat my praise about that other than to that little bit. Uh, secondly, um, we talked a bit earlier about the communication between players or between the uh, the tribes and the gods being difficult. What I liked is that there was a potion that really would have helped that that was discovered on on the final turn. I was the potion master. So it was kind of amusing to see these people, you know, come up and do all these different things. And then it's like, oh, finally, at the very end, they're like, oh, that might have been pretty helpful. So I think I think maybe that's something to calibrate in future games is is giving out. It was fun to sort of like the look of kind of like relief slash disappointment slash j- just the the confusion on his on uh yeah his face when he discovered that potion. It was just like oh. <laughs> so Clayton, do you think and Evan too? Do you think we should just take that potion out entirely since the the communication barriers worked so well? I think it's it's worth keeping, and the way that it's basically you could ask a question of the god and get a vague answer back. So it only conveys a little bit of information. I mean, you get the you get the direct answer, and and the the ancestor spirits get the. Uh... No, I mean that potion. It was you could ask a get like write down a question on a note card. We'd run it to them and get you'd get a uh, vision card back, which are a piece of surrealist art. And so it would be a vague response, and hopefully they would put two and two together and sort of understand the meaning from the god. But so that was one, like, I'd like to keep that in there. The real reason I want to keep that potion in there is the upgraded form of that potion no one got to. And I think one of the things I would change when I run it in the future is 
some of the ways we had of getting like tech to players when they find ancient sites or when they beat up barbarians, like I would start putting out some potion recipes out there for them as well. Mm-hmm. One of them that I really wanted to see happen was there was a potion, the upgraded form of the potion of visions let you, all the gods would get a chance to bid prayer points and whoever won, they got to possess that person's body the next turn. Wow. Which meant they would follow them around for the entirety of their turn. They had to remain next to them. But they were allowed to openly talk with that one player. And that player could respond back. And so they would get a turn of seeing the world from the human's perspective and getting to talk to them. And like they, that player could choose to act as an interpreter and speak to other people and play little games of telephone and whatnot. But that was one that I was really looking forward to seeing happen. I loved having, because some of the spirits, uh, they all had the power to astrally project, which was to walk around the human world. They had to keep doing jazz hands, but they weren't allowed to talk or communicate with anybody. That was just they could oversee and, like, you know, eavesdrop on things. And the one player who was playing the chicken god, Coxley, like, he used that every turn. Like, he was constantly going around and learning stuff. And so I think that's why he had a pretty good understanding of how the human game worked and, like, where to send what miracles and curses where. It's because he went around and saw which teams were, like, hurting for food and which teams were, like, hurting for meeples. And there's like, would come back and be like, all right, we're going to, like, the heck with Orange Team. Let's hit, hit them with fire and brimstone because they're doing too good. And so I really love how difficult the communication was and... It meant the players saw so much into every action that the gods did, which really sort of struck a chord with me as like, oh, it's kind of like religion. Yeah, and there, I mean, there wasn't, they summoned a, they, very beginning of the game, pooled all their resources together to summon a volcano, right? Yep. For seemingly no reason, right? I, I'm not getting they that. They just wanted I'm not to do it. That. No, they just wanted to do it. <laughs> just just power mad. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, if you were told you could summon a volcano... And it seemed achievable, <laughs> wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, yep. Minneapolis would be very different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or then they passed a law declaring that one of the gods could only be referred to as the evil queen of confusion from then on. And the best, so the law system in the game was all the chiefs would vote on laws to propose, and then the gods would choose to empower them um, and make them real by spending prayer points on it. And so that law came up and it was unanimous. Like all the humans were like, haha, we're really sticking it to this, to the God Morai because we're saying she's the evil queen of confusion that came up Morai just started cackling. He was like, yes, that is how you will all refer to me. I will spend the entirety of its cost myself. Yes. She got really, <laughs> I into want it. this to happen. Yeah. And then later her, her, her devotees hut or cave, I should say, Yep. Uh, was getting flooded with lava, and I, I came up to her, and I was like, so um, you can do something about this? You can make it like a... Because she was the goddess of nature and community, right? Um, <laughs> weirdly enough. So I was like, well, you could use your powers <laughs> to make it like a nice wooden dell, or... Yeah, you pro- know... probably the least evil god, actually. Yeah. No, she was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and... <laughs> I was like, you could do anything you want with it. And her first idea was like, oh, can I make it like an evil lair? Like, can I make it like a fort castle? <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what happened. She turned it into this giant evil thing. And I honestly, I don't know what her motivations were, but I think she was having a lot of fun. <laughs> and I think like that was one of the really fun thing was just that like the gods were totally capricious and just... <laughs> 
like having fun with their powers and like all the human players were like i don't know man they made that like volcano they they indicated where blue team was that mean blue team must have done something they hated like what did blue team do last turn like don't sacrifice any of what a blue team sacrificed last turn the gods don't like that and we were just like good good yeah. Like, that is the best, that is, like, my favorite part across all games of running any mega game is watching players latch on to ideas, especially if we didn't see them coming. Um, and just going like, well, now we know what we are going to base things on in the upcoming turns, because we heard players getting really excited about some concept. You know, I think we really got a good crop of players, uh, and very creative ones, too. I'd say, I, I can't remember if this got uh, put in the last episode or not, uh, but I might have had to edit it out. But one of the laws that passed the Chiefs moot was that if your team were to go off and fight something, your entire team would have to get together at the very beginning of the turn and just chant, Ooga Chaka. And so you would be off on your own, like doing some control stuff or talking to a player and you just hear Ooga Chaka from across the room. And then everyone would look to see like who, which team was going on the warpath. Yeah. And that was such a brilliant piece of diplomacy and creative thinking. And then later, one of the teams, <laughs> one of the teams agreed to go on the warpath. They got their entire team together, chanted Uga Chaka, and then just didn't go on the warpath because, like, that was legal. The the yeah, rule said that psyched out the other team. Yeah, like, they were like, "Oh crap, purples on the warpath or something." Like, mm-hmm. the heck with this. It was a complete like uh, I don't remember if it was a double cross or like a double bluff, but <laughs> <laughs> that was a player. That was a law that. I I will actually probably throw that in as my favorite law of the game and my favorite moment was just because that was the kind of rule I almost wanted to put in the game from the beginning. Like and honestly, I think we should in the future. Like it's it's such a good one. Like it is, let's start with a law. It will be this one. <laughs> like that will be. I don't know if we'll start with in play, but it will be like one of the examples given yeah, to absolutely. the Chiefs from now on as a good law to pass because. I mean, the whole point of the laws was to come up with those sorts of weird because they kept just passing laws initially about like you have to bring stuff to the chief mood or you have to do this other thing. But then well, yeah, some... like the red the red menace wanted to just like establish communism, for, you know, like rewrite history. Yeah. Um, which and I like, you know, I'm cool. we I'm tried to that. go with. But like the, the whole point of it was to try and get players to invent those kinds of weird social mores and like requirements like. I kept imagining players doing, like, in order to make a trade, you may only handle the items with your left hand, you know, type thing. And just to, like, force these weird sort of social contracts to form. And so, like, Uga Chaka, I was just like... Uga Chaka was great because it was creative and, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a diplomatic tell. Uh, yeah. A lot of the other social mores, though, it'd be... I mean, there's no motivation for players to make the yeah, game harder on themselves. themselves. Yeah, we had a system in place for um, control to be keeping track of the taboos and who violated them. Part of the problem we had was that not too many laws were passed that we could really easily register taboos for um, because it mostly ended up being like renaming the gods. But yeah. Oh, and then all the taboos got repealed at one point, right? Except for the bear related ones. Except for the bear related. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Yeah. Bears were sacred. Bears were sacred, but they could be ridden into battle. (laughs) As we found out on the last turn. But yeah, like, I the the law system is something I'm going to have to, like, reinvent. Because like you were saying earlier, Clayton, like, it is always better to come up with 
bonuses for players to remember as opposed to uh, remember penalties. Mm -hmm. And so the whole point, the taboo system as it was, was designed around like, oh, whoever violates it the most will get some penalty as like an encouragement for them to follow it. But I think I'll have to switch it to whoever follows it the most will get some bonuses for pleasing the gods because then they're more likely to go, hey, control, I did remember to say Ugachako and be like, yep, noted. It's hard to manage like those kinds of everyone needs to be giving information things, especially if they have mechanical benefits in game. Yeah, I, I think you could maybe do the penalty thing, um, but you just also have to attach a bonus to it. Like if you pass this law that sort of hamstrings you in some way, like, you know, you you can't use your right hand when conducting trade, then, yeah. you know, what do you get out of that? Right. Maybe you discover a potion or I mean, like ch trying to tie that in flavor wise is sort of weird. But I think if you want to keep the, the punishment tracking thing, yeah. uh, which you know, is something we didn't even get to explore. Right. It's still an yeah. experiment. It just like we didn't even get to the stage where it happened. Yeah. Or yeah. have it so that if the because part of the thing was the chief moot had to propose a certain amount of laws each turn. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think you might have floated this at one point. But if they don't meet that number, then just introduce arbitrary taboos that's yeah basically um in the game if they didn't either sometimes allison wrote her own laws and we didn't tell the spirits that that had happened or we let the spirits write some but the they all they always came up with the requisite number like yeah, i think it was um, one turn that allison made one up or something yeah and because she was like all right, they, they didn't come up with enough well then we're going to invent some that are fun hmm. or have it so that if if all of the laws get voted down by the gods, have that be another be trigger. Yeah. Well, one thing I think I think part of the reason they got so many laws passed is that we were pretty lenient with the timing. And so you know, I, that makes sense the first turn or two. But I think I think we could have been more strict and had caused, you know, a little more chaos. Yeah, I think just... we we overestimate evilness and we underestimate creativity. Let's dive a little deeper now. So so you had the gods. And each one of these gods, at the very beginning of the game, they chose their two archetypes, mm -hmm. right? And that determined their victory condition. So, like, yeah. the god of exploration would want the majority of the map to be explored or more. Since I didn't want to come up with the tribe's main goal was survive and sort of a nebulous win at being alive. Because I figured it'd be kind of obvious which tribe at the end had the most people and the most materials and food. So I wanted to give very specific guidelines to the spirits. And so each spirit had two aspects, and those aspects determined, one, what they liked and didn't like to be sacrificed to them. And that would affect the amount of prayer points generated when somebody would go and make a sacrifice and perform a prayer roll. I did. Um, did I ever pick up on that? Like, I don't know yeah, what they did. some of them did. Did they? Okay. They picked up, and, and the spirits started to be better about, like, letting them know midway through the game. Yeah, like, like hey, started, no more fur. I don't like right. her. Yeah, I think that especially with the hermits, they're like, tell people to stop sending me this and this. I want these things. And so that was there. And it also determined their victory condition as to who would be ascend to primacy amongst the spirits. I mean, that was, yeah, like the explorer wanted all the map uncovered. The hunt wanted more animals hunted. The, you know, war wanted more player on player violence. And so yeah, they're, they're all they're based. Pretty, on they're pretty self-explanatory where you can kind of intuit what they generally want. Yeah. yeah, that was one mistake that we did was we attached like, as I was saying earlier, as a no, no, we attached like straight up values to uh, the ascension points to all these various things that they were trying for, which meant we couldn't 
like in terms of balance, like we weren't 100% certain how balanced they were. And so at the end of the game, we couldn't do any hand waving or try and like recalculate based on anything because yeah. everything was just so, so, so the person down. who won won by a whole stink of done. Oh, well, that was because of the intern shenanigans, which I imagine we'll get to soon. Yeah. yeah. Because that end of turn game shenanigans was the most end of game shenanigans I've ever seen. <laughs> the 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 penultimate turn craziness was my third favorite thing. <laughs> so yeah so let's let's just jump right into it so Blaine, why don't you take it away for this penultimate because i'm not exactly sure what you're referring to oh um in the grand so, scheme of everything that happened right right in the grand so the turn before last uh was when we finally had our our first player deaths which we had been kind of hoping and encouraging and trying to, oh, to but i wanted players to die so much earlier and we had we had two player deaths in the same turn and they were both from orange team and i was i was sort of the orange team's you know their team control so, you know, they felt a little personal. I got to know them. We were friends, whatever. Not that I was, you know, going to cheat to help them out or anything. But uh, when they, they got to become ancestor spirits, that was pretty amazing. What struck me the most was the woman who, who died second. She was, I forget her role. It was something, it was something, you know, like you can imagine it's nice and peaceful. It was like forager or something. And she had, you know, just like this, like, extremely huge cute friendly smile and was like the most approachable happy person in the world and when they died they got to choose uh from the the attributes that all the other spirits had chose from but they got two more they got death and destruction and she chose death and destruction which was just <laughs> the most incongruous thing uh, you know from everything i had known about her in the in the six hours or whatever we got to know each other so that was hilarious to me and then you know seeing her her eyes light up at these you know these new powers she has and what what havoc she can wreak on these poor humans she seemed um, all too pleased to assume yes. the mantle of the death and destruction spirit you know so much happened on the last turn that yeah, it's, I it's hard kind to of don't even like at the last turn we had the giant monster get summoned it's always good to end with the bang and a big combat and it was so huge and the stats on it were so big that it was going to take multiple tribes allying together to kill this thing it was a beast and so we were like hey maybe the tribes can work together at that and then like it was also fun because the spirits got to decide which tribe they hated and wanted to destroy and the guy who had the most power wanted to destroy the orange tribe which by that point had merged with green tribe yeah i don't know why so, they, they chose to merge with such a toxic asset orange team was taking a lot of flack that game <laughs> orange, team, orange team had so much food they had like hundreds of well, I mean, not hundreds, but they had dozens of dried food. So there was there was like some good reasons to side with them. Okay. Yeah. Um. And so that happened, and so we're like, all right, it's going after Orange and Green Tribe together then. And so the last turn is like, there's a huge battle going on. I can see that war control is just slammed because everyone is there to fight the giant monster. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. Then the bomb drops, where Graham comes over to me and says, so. Purple Tribe's doing a thing. And I'm like, oh, what are they doing this turn? He's like, well, the entirety of Purple Tribe has all committed ritual suicide. <laughs> oh, gosh, that was my fifth favorite thing. <laughs> now, I don't know if we want to include this, because this might be spoilerific, and we'll see how many Age of Flint players listen to this and come back and try this from now on. But <laughs> they literally burned everything they had. Their entire supply of food, their sheep, Meeple. equipment, their meeples, their own health they burned it all in prayer to tefaz and i should say that they also convinced one of the players from blue to help him out as well 
Right, so that last turn, Blue had uncovered one of the power potions, powerful potions, which was double the value of any one sacrifice that you do this turn. Wow. I think Blue and Purple's, like, healers had been friends and, like, helping each other figure out potions the entire game. Yeah, yeah, they, so, were, they were definitely collaborating. So he told, so Purple told Blue what they were doing, and Blue was like, oh, well then here, take this. So the normal number of pair points generated on a turn was per person was about 20 per prayer that happened by the spiritual leaders. That last turn, that one event generated 1600. Yes. And this was just due to, uh, you know, they had the raw amount of stuff that they, it's they how the sacrificed and then they also triggered they pretty much every multiplier they could. And then some, <laughs> yeah, they triggered so many multipliers and, and worked it all out. And so it took grandma a while to do the math. And so all of these prayer points hit the spirits. Like, I go over and I tell Allison this is about to fall on her. And she's like, how many? 1,640? She's just like, oh, son of a bitch. Because she's trying to balance all the prayer point costs, and so it comes back. And it hits, and the spirits are just gobsmacked. I look around that table, and all of their jaws hit the table. Because 800 goes to Tafaz. 800 then goes to the rest of them to figure out what they want to do. That last turn, so many miracles just start flying down onto the planet. Oh, and I should say, I should say, one thing that happened before the news dropped for the sacrifice was they were debating at the god table whether or not to curse the purple team. And (laughs) me and Clayton just happened to be there, and I I lean over and whisper to Clayton, I think they all just ritually killed themselves. And Clayton just (laughs) burst out laughing. Because the, the the debate was intense about, you know, how they needed to punish Purple Tribe and this and that and the other. And I'm just like, this is great because the news is going to arrive too late and they're going to, you know, fire a curse off into nothing. And then it was just just a beautiful, like, miscommunicate, you know, a comedy of errors almost. Yeah, so of- all of that prayer point ends up turning into Tafaz spends the entire wad to reanimate his followers the purple tribe and make them into undead unkillable warriors with death touch he just wanted to make them the mightiest warriors possible and i'm like sweet done (laughs) and at that point like it was it was what 100 points to raise the volcano like you have 800 points you can do whatever you want pretty much the rest of the ones are like wait what he's doing what oh okay um well we need to like i forget who loved the red tribe and they were his friends like was like fine i'm turning red tribe into robots and they have like cyber cannons and stuff now and we were like okay do it and they ended up writing giant war bears and also green and orange tribe got thrown in too because their gods were like you know what i'll put my value towards that too let's just make everyone giant well, yeah, robot they, they had one team who rode dinosaurs and fought with dinosaurs right and then the other team became uh, like androids essentially yeah like <laughs> uh, apparently the spirits turn one almost all asked allison like what will it take to make robot dinosaurs appear in this game time traveling robot dinosaurs time traveling <laughs> robot dinosaurs and allison was like that's something to work towards we'll see what happens <laughs> yeah allison, uh, allison mvp man yeah she was doing yeah great. she did such a great job and then, so, the thing that really stuck out to me was in at the epilogue, and I'm kind of proud of this moment, was that after we did the epilogue about who died and who, you know, Red Tribe turned into robots, Orange and Green Tribe are riding dinosaurs with their robot friends, Blue Tribe had sheep, and they decided to just leave the, vi- the valley, because they were like, I'm done with this stuff. Um, 
we got to bring all the purple tribe up and line them up. And we told them we were going to let them do this. And they each got to walk forward and call out someone who they wanted to kill at the end of the game. And I got to give the spirits credit because the spirits saw this coming and said, after we announced the death touch power, the spirits were like, can we spend points to protect individuals? And we were like, yeah, sure. And so they each protected their devotees. And so the first two people, I think, who were called out to be death touched were the devotees of one of the spirits. And so they didn't work the first two times. The players were like, no. And then they called over the blue warrior. And that guy just like took it like a champ. Went down to one knee and they were like, and they touched him on the top of his head and he went to a full death throw and fell down dead because he thought it was hilarious that they spent, you know, they only had like six people in the game. They got to murder and they chose him and he was very proud of that. Yeah, well, my favorite is the the last group of people they decided to kill is they got all the other spiritual leaders from all the other teams to come up and then they had them roll up their front sleeve. And if they didn't have the mark of Tefaz, which was a thing that happened earlier with with a copy stamp, and you kind of imprinted it on your body, and it was essentially like being branded with the symbol of your god, right? Yep. If you didn't have that on your arm, then they death-touched you, which I thought was just such a nice touch, you know? Like, that's the best part about Mega Games, and one of the strengths of Age of Flynn, I think, is that it allows for these weird microcosms of belief alliances and betrayals and everything to happen where there somebody came up with the idea of brandish of branding the followers with this stamp that just said copy on it like a stamp that you would hit on any piece of paper and they just use that to mark the people who gave proper worship to Tafaz. and so they had this on their arms and they all like it was i don't think they even told them to but all the players who received it hid it they all kept it hidden as a secret society type thing and i was like that's pretty sweet because even as game control i didn't know how the mark worked for like two or three turns after it was created (laughs) like i had to go over and be like what the hell's with this mark can someone explain it to me and they're like oh here's how it works because i spent so much time running around and assisting in communication amongst everybody like some just never reached me and so when i found out about it i loved it even more yeah we had some really creative players and it really came out of them not knowing what to do. Like I was working with the purple team before the very end to kind of adjudicate like, yeah, so you have death touch, like what would you like to do? And their first idea was to go and tackle the big monster that was fighting and the battle was mm-hmm. still going on. Oh, that, that's so valiant of them. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, that was their first idea. And so, and it was that's, great. That's, so I'm like, all right, yeah, let's do it. Everyone they, follow me. Right and on. we just start walking slowly. We start chanting, ooga chaka, ooga chaka, <laughs> ooga, walking towards the battle table. And right as about the time we get there, which is only like five, ten feet away, right? Then there's this huge cheer. And that was the exact moment when they had announced the end of the battle and they had killed the monster. Yeah. So because they were slightly too late, then they decided like, all right, well, I guess we'll pivot and set up this very elaborate (laughs) (laughs) judicial system to decide who gets killed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's crazy. It was it was definitely some crazy, very entertaining last turn madness definitely the craziest that i've ever witnessed personally Mm -hmm. Um, i'm curious i I think that's probably true for me too yeah yeah and i I think it comes with two main things one is they had all these resources built up at the end of the game right and they they wanted to do something with them pretty natural thought (laughs) who does that yeah exactly i would do the exact same thing you know and then the other thing was just the communication barrier between the gods and the the players were just was just so heavy and the fog had not been lifted by the end of the game (laughs) 
And that's it for the pod this week. Thanks again for Evan Lewis and Clayton Hughes coming on. They are great. Seattle Make Games is great. Shucks was great. The players were great. Shout out to all the players who had some really creative ideas and really made it an absolutely enjoyable and just bonkers game. <laughs> Shout out to Graham and Allison for their standout control roles as well. And here's hoping to another fantastic Shucks and maybe another Age of Flint next year. So I know Seattle Mega Games is taking a little bit of a hiatus after Shucks, but they will be putting on another Age of Flint soon. So if you are in the area, totally look into that. Uh, it was definitely a blast the first time. I don't imagine it'd be any different the second. And stay tuned for more events for Seattle Mega Games in the future. Quick shout out to all the Mega Gamers going to PAX Unplugged to play one of the Mega Games going on there. I know Scott Silsby and the Ironmark crew are there along with Noah Crow, all of which have been on the previous podcast. So if you'd like to meet them in person, totally just go to a Mega Game and I imagine you'll run into at least one of them. <laughs> and that's it for the Mega Game Report this week. If you'd like to get in touch, totally email in at megagamereport at gmail.com. Especially for hosting a Mega Game in the Upper Midwest area. Shout out to the Fargo crew putting on a Watch the Sky soon. Totally looking forward to controlling for it. And with all that being said, this is the Mega Game Report signing out.